This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. There is a lot going on between Washington and Jerusalem. Some of it sounds quite ominous. Israel, after three months of a legislation freeze, is going ahead with a judicial overhaul and protests to match. And we have Oscar winner Dame Helen Mirren on the show today. What more do we need to say? It's unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy. Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. It is all going on this week. It has been fairly crazed. I know that um, the star quality is going to come later on with our interview with a genuine Hollywood movie stage legend. So that's where the sheer star power comes. But I did manage to bathe in a little bit of star power myself. and I'm still slightly buzzing from it because... As you already know, Yoni, I did see the legendary Bruce Springsteen perform here in London uh, a few days ago, and it was just something else. I mean, transporting. I am so unbelievably jealous. You know, I'm not usually jealous of you living in London and you're doing your Londoner thing because I love my city and I'm fine. But occasionally those moments where you're like, oh, just sort of off the cuff saying to me, yeah, I'm going off to Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, Those moments, those moments are the moments I get, you know, green eye jealousy. Um, I I know, I know. I don't blame you a bit because it was sort of, I did just sort of slip that reference in. Uh, So I wrote about the um, performance and about the whole experience and I found it incredibly moving. I mean, it was brilliant, but also it was clearly a performance by a man who's now getting on a bit and he acknowledged it and talked about time and all those sorts of things. Anyway, I checked in with our uh, friend of the podcast, previous uh, contributor, Eric Alterman, who is, among other things, a biographer of Bruce Springsteen, who directed me to a piece he wrote called Bruce Springsteen is Jewish. <laughs> Subhead, he may be Catholic, but to many fans, including this one's, his lyrics speak to a different creed. You have to dig out the piece. It was in the Atlantic uh, some time ago. It makes a very strong case that Bruce Springsteen is uh, at least somewhere culturally. He's you from know, New Jersey. I mean, that gives him, you know, some some points for being Jewish. Absolutely, it did, and um, and, and does, and you know, the name uh, itself. People have often mistaken him. Uh, for a Jew. Uh, Eric reports that the Jew or not Jew website, how, by the way, did we not know about this, gives Springsteen a six out of 10 on its <laughs> Jewish scale, even with its inev- inevitable verdict, not a Jew. Um, so we have to get into this. But no, uh, do go and look at, uh, well, you can look at the thing I wrote about Springsteen. It's there on the Guardian website, but also Eric's thing, Eric Alterman, Bruce Springsteen is Jewish. We're always open for debate on here. If you have a view on the Jewishness or otherwise of Bruce Springsteen, you know where to find us on various social media platforms. Let us know what you think. And anyway, that was my um, big cultural outing of the week. And, and let me recommend your terrific. piece on the Guardian because it's beautiful and you write about how he sort of embraces his age and doesn't try to, you know, run away from it. I think it's a beautiful piece. Um, but that was your um, 
you know, events of your week. Let's talk about the events of mine. Somehow yes. a little less um, harmonic and, you know, yeah, I guess not mellifluous tones here in this uh, part of the uh, world. So where we are is that the uh, Netanyahu government has decided after three months of freezing the legislation, we all remember the night of Netanyahu's decision to sack Yoav Gallant and the response of Israelis taking to the street, being very concerned about this, really probably a night of of intense protests. The protests have been going on every week, of course. But that was a night in which Netanyahu decided to freeze the legislation for the good of the country and because of all of the external and internal pressure. Uh, But now after three months, Netanyahu is going ahead with it. And what we saw this week is the very first uh, part of the reasonable clause and uh, essentially scratching out the reasonable clause passed in the Knesset in first reading. And the coalition completely intends to go forward with this uh, legislation to end it until the end of this session at the end of uh, July. Yeah, I mean, that is quite a timetable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it means, you know, just just every day is going to count. It is only the first reading. It was, there's a lot to do for them to get this through. But uh, I mean, to what extent should we be surprised by mm-hmm. the fact that they are going ahead, despite everything, the protests, the international pressure, we're going to come on to some serious international pressure on that. The fact that they're, you know, determined to steamroll this through, I mean, you know, you, others did think they would not fully go ahead with it in its original form, and they haven't. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. dropped a whole lot of elements from it. But this is a core part of it, and it does, you know, how do we account for the determination with which they're pursuing this? Well, first of all, I mean, that is that that is the salient question. If this does pass indeed in, in the second and third reading and become a law, and the coalition says it's going to do it within 10 days, right? The time frame doesn't allow for a lot more. It will be the first part of the judicial overhaul legislation to actually pass. Um, and that is, of course, important. What this specifically means is that any civil servant in Israel will be dependent upon politicians and their ability to appoint or fire without any judicial oversight. Of course, the talk inside political circles is that the first thing they would want to do after that is to fire the attorney general, uh, who's also head of prosecution and responsible for Netanyahu's trial. But you ask a good question, which is, what is the logic behind Netanyahu deciding to unfreeze the uh, legislation? I think he is at this moment where he is more, let's say, wary of his own coalition and the forces inside it, uh, more than anyone, Yariv Levine, who is the justice minister and the architect of all this. And and that is the thing he's worried about. It's not that he's not worried about the uh, United States, the pressure from the United States. We will discuss this in a moment. He's not. He's worried about, uh, obviously, the reservists. And we said this is the main point. The pilots, the part of the Air Force, the reserve pilots who said they won't serve if the judicial overhaul uh, passes. His gambit here, Netanyahu's gambit, is that on this clause, they will not actually live up to their threat. Because what we saw to this point is just a threat. But he's saying, wait, for the reasonableness clause, now what? We're going to see tens or hundreds of pilots saying not actually coming to reserve duty? And I have a quote for you from the, something that is published on Friday in the Idiota Chorota newspaper, Amit Segal, our political correspondent, saying Netanyahu in closed doors is saying, the country can do without a few squadrons, but it can't do without a government. And the meaning of we, of us not passing this legislation now 
is that Israel won't have a government. You obviously argue the merits of what he's saying, but this is what he's thinking. He doesn't want to lose the government now, and in the near term, that's more important for him than what's happening later. And that is an astonishing quote, um, mm-hmm. given his self-styled images, Israel's Mr. Security, the idea of jeopardizing the security by saying, oh, we, you know, what's a couple of squadrons among friends? And then, but blatantly for his own political survival. I also think the set, the tactic there that you've outlined is um, of sort of salami slicing. That mm-hmm. yes, the pilots wouldn't stomach, they wouldn't swallow the whole package. But if you slice it and feed it to them slice by slice, then each individual slice is somehow palatable. And therefore, uh, the reasonable course just on its own, you're surely not going to refuse to serve just for that. He's testing that. And, um, you know, there is further reporting here. It's Amos Harel is reporting, you know, that the uh, he's spoken to individual pilots, uh, reservists, who are saying that they aren't then because now the requirement is they can't move on block as a as a group they have to individually make take this stand yeah that they'll take that stand it's mm. all going to be about numbers is is critical mass yeah. possible will enough of these patriotic pilots say even the reasonableness clause is too much and also think about two things one is that I did this interview this week with the former uh, IDF chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, who's now in Benny Gantz's party, the National Unity Party. And he's saying security issues for Israel right now have never been so dire and complicated since the end of the Yom Kippur War. That's what he's saying. By the way, we will mention the Yom Kippur War also later in our program, in our conversation uh, coming up. But Listen to how dangerous he's saying. Look, all of the red lights are flashing. Our enemies think that our deterrence is low. We have a complicated security uh, situation in the north and in the south. And this government does not have a bandwidth at all because it is dealing with the uh, judicial overhaul. I make one more point of the difference between now and what we saw in March. The protests themselves definitely not dying down but losing a little bit of the public support because Israelis are less and less tolerant of roads being blocked. They're less and less tolerant of the uh, main airport, Ben-Gurion Airport, being uh, uh, shut down. Actually, not shut down. The, the planes continued, but there's, there are huge protests there. So Netanyahu reads that as well. And again, his gambit here is saying, I am passing this legislation by the end of the summer session, this part about the reasonableness clause, and then we'll see. Maybe he wants to kill it. Maybe he'll tell his coalition, that's it. We've done that enough. Let's move forward. But he wants to pass this in second and third reading to prove, at least to his home base, that he is, you know, adamant about this. And what some of the opponents say is the reasonable clause should not be misunderstood as only one part of a whole package. In a way, it's the whole ball game because yes. under cover of that change, you could, runs the argument, do the whole thing because you can now, you can appoint the people, you can say, well, this action that we want to do is legitimate and nobody, the court can't say it's unreasonable. And therefore you could smuggle through the rest of the package mm-hmm. uh, that was originally planned. So he's testing the country. To its limits, I think. He's testing, he's calling the bluff of the protesters. How far will you go? How much strength do you have? Will people come out for something which I can spin as just a small procedural thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's pushing it. Whereas I think a few months ago, a lot of people thought he would not push things to the brink, that the threat of sort of Israeli self-destruction was so 
terrifying that he would not push things that far. And yet he is. So these are really fateful two, three weeks for the country. And, uh, you know, you, you hesitate to be hyperbolic about these things, but it feels like we're actually at crunch point mm-hmm. now and, um, how, how it plays out over these, yeah, the next three weeks are decide, could be decisive. Yes, and the feeling is 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 really much of that. The tensions are very, very high, running high between both camps. You know, there are these the feeling of of fumes in the air, of gas fumes in the air, and just a little bit of a just one match can set this whole thing on fire. I really hope it doesn't. But yes, until the end of the Knesset session at the end of July, we are still going to be in that volume. Just one thought that strikes me: for a long time, Israeli politics seemed to be that the main thing was external facing. The main thing was, for example, the conflict with the Palestinians, eruptions on the West Bank, and every now and again there would be a domestic distraction from that. Now it's reversed. Those forty-eight hours that we talked about last week on the podcast, the battles and uh, military operation in Jenin. That was a kind of 40-hour diversion and then back to what really counts and what really gets the pulses racing, and that is the domestic clash. Now feels like that's the existential contest and question for Israel. And the other thing outside, as it were, the borders is a sort of, you know, comes and then goes so that Israelis can turn back to the conflict that matters, namely the one with each other and with themselves. Yep. And when you think of the Attorney General, Avichai Mandelblitz, former Attorney General, uh, that I spoke to this week, and he's saying if this legislation, this piece of legislation goes through, by the way, also the person who decided to indict Netanyahu, if this goes through, Israel will be a dictatorship, a threshold dictatorship. That is, you know, who would have ever imagined that that would be something we say? Yeah. Well, it's being noticed around the world too. And that's what perhaps we should move on to um, to that, because... The relationship which, you know, historically, from the beginning, and again, we might talk about this with our guests later on as well, is the one between Israel and the United States, the key strategic partner. And that relationship is under new and in some ways exceptional strain. Um, There are a few signs of it, but one of them has come from a columnist who's been a guest uh, on this podcast, of course, Tom Friedman of the New York Times, you know, multiple Pulitzer Prize winner, hugely influential foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. Important in this case, though, because of the sense in which he is extremely well connected to particularly democratic administrations. It's thought that he has the ear of Joe Biden and that you know, if he's writing, then he's not only speaking for himself, as it were, that there is the implication that he is partly picking up the re- what he hears from the administration. So what did he write in a column published this week? Headline, the US reassessment of Netanyahu's government has begun. In a uh, column that really does not pull its punches, in which describes Benjamin Netanyahu as engaged in unprecedented radical behavior. It warns that uh, this government, the Israeli government, is, un- un- quote, undermining our shared interests with Israel, our shared values, and, and he goes on to explain this, the vitally important shared fiction about the status of the West Bank that has kept peace hopes there just barely alive. He is saying that the tension uh, between Washington and the government in Israel has reached such a pitch that essentially in the United States will, before very long, reconsider its fundamental relationship 
with Israel. As I said, this isn't just, it is partly one of America's most influential journalists talking. There's also the sense between the lines that this is a message that has come from the White House that is being transmitted Mm -hmm. to Israel. Yes, and we add to that, uh, you know, uh, the the president of the United States giving an interview to uh, Fareed Zakaria a few days ago, talking about uh, the fact that this uh, government in Israel is one of the most extreme governments he's ever seen. He mentions Golda Meir. Since Golda Meir, he says, also the uh, ambassador to Israel, uh, the outgoing uh, ambassador, Tom Knights, to the Wall Street Journal. I think it's interesting he's giving that message to a conservative newspaper, and he's saying, uh, you know, we're trying to prevent Israel from going off the rails. This is a lot of talk that is worrying for Israelis and even worrying for for Netanyahu voters. Now, officially what Israel is saying is we don't know of any reassessment that's going on. They also tried to sort of calm reporters in a in an off-the-record briefing saying, oh, yes, there have been all kinds of instances of reassessment. Actually, there was one official instance, and that is the example of uh, its uh, President Ford in 1975. But obviously there were other uh, instances of difficulties. Now, I will tell you, Jonathan, that officials, the U.S. officials say to me, there's no reassessment, our our relationship is ongoing, there are challenges, but for example, security relations have never been stronger. Now, what is going on here? Obviously, there is an issue, right? I mean, we can't deny the fact that more than anything, this government sort of goes under everything that that the Democratic Party, or not everything, but a lot of what the Democratic Party believes in. I mean, when you have Ben Gvir and Smotrich in a government, it's very hard to continue talking about shared values. And when you have a Democratic Party that is going more and more to the left, asking why, you know, Israel is receiving such a hefty sum of military aid when some of them, you know, continually don't, uh, in, in a continuous way, don't agree with what Israel is doing. I think Tom Friedman mentioned in his column, 146 billion dollars till now uh, Israel has received from the United States. I think he didn't even take into account inflation. So it's probably a little bit more than that. I mean, so these are really the issues. And, you know, and at the same time, when you have Israeli ministers saying, well, Israel should, you know, the United States should mind its own business. I don't think the United States sees it that way when it gives that amount of money. Now, I think it's important to say to this point, nothing on the ground has actually happened. When you think of the fact that, for example, Reagan said to Begin, stop the war, and that's what stopped the first Lebanon war. When you think of Bush Jr., I mean, Bush 43, saying to Sharon, you get out of the Mukata and don't hurt Arafat, and you do that in 48 hours, and that's what he did. When you think of the fact that Bush 41 told uh, uh, Shamir, listen, Everything's fine in our relationship. We're just uh, going to check in customs every part of the F-16 planes that are coming to you. And Shamir really got that. You know, he really understood that 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 means that he needs to come to the uh, discussions in Madrid and to begin to discuss the Palestinian issue. All of these are things that are not remotely happening yet. What I'm trying to say is the United States is not yet really applied true pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu's government. No, I think that's right. I mean, the um, it can do more much more. And yet, underpinning... I'm not the calling them challenge. to do it, by the way. I'm just no, mentioning the fact I understand. that they haven't. But under, but, but, and yet, despite everything you've said, it feels more severe this time, because it isn't a disagreement about, you know, in all three of those cases, a kind of military confrontation. It's saying the country itself 
its direction is becoming a country we don't recognize. Mm -hmm. That's different from saying we disapprove of this or that operation and we think you've now gone far enough. It's saying continue on the path you're on and we are, there's a parting of ways. No longer are there shared values between us. That is a more profound mm -hmm. gulf than can be bridged simply by pulling out of an operation or cancelling a military move and then it's all over in 24 hours. This mm. is seems to me deeper as a rift. I think, um, look, this is something that is not going to go away and we will speak about it indeed with uh, people very closely involved and watching it very closely in the next week or two. We should um, introduce our very special guest who is indeed the star of a film that turns on some of the very themes we've just been discussing about Israel's relationship with the United States and moments when it becomes strained and fraught. She is a very special guest. Dame Helen Mirren is one of her generation's finest actors. She has won every prize possible in her field on stage and on screen, obviously winning uh, Academy Awards, and has played some of the most iconic women of recent history, including famously Queen Elizabeth II. She is in Israel as we speak to promote her new movie, where she plays none other than Golda Meir. You're neat, you're lucky, you're with her there in Jerusalem, in person, our guest for this week. Uh, Dame Helen Mirren. Oscar winner, Dame Helen Mirren. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you very much for thank this you. conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I want to begin with talking to you about this film. And obviously, Golda herself was such an icon in the, in the 70s. I mean, she was the first female leader of a, of a, what we like to call ourselves a Western, a modern Western country. You know, can you tell us a little bit about what you knew about her then and what you knew about her going into this, this film? I didn't know a lot about Golda, but obviously I was very much alive and kicking and a young woman, you know, making my way in life in the seventies. And it, I do remember very clearly the excitement. I'm not too sure that that's the right word, but, but the feeling of triumph and of satisfaction and, and of awe, actually, that a woman had been elected to lead a country. Mm. I think it was the first time in my experience that I'd ever known that, let alone as a country as complex and, and iconic, if you like, if that's the right word, as Israel. Um, so it was a very exciting moment for women in general, I would say. Yeah. And, and your, I mean, your preparations are always legendary. Can you tell us a little bit about how you prepared? Cause the Israeli actors were in awe of how you sort of prepared for this, for this role. Well, it's very nice of them to think that. I, I always think I'm extremely lazy. I'm put it off to the last minute always. Um, but obviously with someone like Golda, you have the adv a great advantage of a lot of, t of film and sound, which is very, very important. And, and also, I think, uh, because the whole thing of prosthetics has advanced so hugely in the last, um, 10, 15 years, you know, you can do things with makeup now that you couldn't do like 20 years ago. So all of that was very adv advantageous for us. 
And then, you know, reading her book, that was, that was very, very, very important. Um, I don't know, just the little elements start coming together and, and then you sort of jump in off the deep end, really. And, and what do you think, uh, this film adds to the understanding of Golda Meir that, I'm thinking particularly of the audience outside Israel. In Israel, it might be very different. But for the audience outside Israel, in other words, people, you know, like you, who have an outline, an inkling in their mind beforehand of Goldemir, what do you think this film adds that people might not have grasped before? Well, I think, first of all, Guy wanted to do the film because of the release of certain of paperwork, which gave Israel a new understanding of what happened backstage, if you like, through the Yom Kippur War, and how, in fact, Golda was not as responsible. She took the responsibility onto her shoulders, but she was not ultimately truly responsible. She was not a, she was not a commander. She listened to her commanders who were, you know, flushed from their great success with the Six Day War and assuming that they would, you know, cruise through this one. And of course, it was absolutely not the case, but she trusted them to a certain extent, fought with them and trusted them as we see in uh, through the film uh, and ultimately took the responsibility for for the disaster a potential disaster of the yom kippur war but um i i think for me it, it was understanding the physical her physical suffering that she was going through as well as the mental suffering of dealing with this enormous burden of the war dealing with cancer treatments the incredible pain in her swollen legs the physical demands upon her that she was just gutting her way through. That was a revelation for me. I didn't know anything about that. Because obviously in Israel, she's, she's still a very controversial figure, and this is the sort of basic trauma of Israel's history, the, the Yom Kippur War, and a lot of people would blame her for not seeing the intelligence, for not preparing the military. So this movie really gives you a different view of her, and it's a much more forgiving view. Of, of Golda Meir. Well, I think it is informed by the the release of the of the papers that were kept secret for many many years, and and I think there is now a, a, a new understanding of really what Golda was dealing with. And and also there's this moment which, by, by the way, is completely true. She said it in 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 reality as well. She says, "I I'm not the one to make the military decisions. That's what the generals are for." And it's interesting because in the when you watch it as a viewer in 2023, it's a little jarring for you to hear the the woman leader saying, "I'm not making those kinds of decisions." But that's actually what she said in reality as well. And I I suspect that is a reality about war in in general. You know you. You look at the horrific nature of the Ukraine war, for example, and Putin is a monster and a dictator, but he has to listen to his generals, mm -hmm. you know, as Churchill did, mm -hmm. you know. If a military commander says, I cannot do that, I do not have the men or the uh, equipment to do that, it is not possible. You can't tell me to go there because I'm telling you it is impossible. You have to listen to your military commander. I would imagine that's a general rule of thumb. Yeah. The, the, the film doesn't labour this point at all, but there is more than one nod to the sexism she faced. There's this moment where she observes that the men, the ministers and military advisors do not rise 
yes. for her. They don't stand yes. for her. Yes. And she had a memory that they did for her <laughs> male predecessors. And I wonder how much that bothered Golda Meir, or was she, and this is somebody I inevitably thought about watching the film, was she, like Margaret Thatcher, one of those women who you wouldn't really describe so much as a feminist, as one of those women who thought they could be, as it were, and as Thatcher was called, you'll remember, the toughest man in the room. I, I, I don't think Goldemere and, and Margaret Thatcher had a huge amount in common. I, I don't sense that. I think Margaret Thatcher absolutely wanted to be where she was. Mm. And I don't think Golda did. Mm. I, I don't think it was her huge overriding ambition in life to become, you know, the leader of Israel. It fell upon her for various historical reasons. And she just happened to be the only person in place when that role became open. And, and it kind of fell upon her. I don't think she wanted it. But she did have the capability of doing it which is why, you know, they asked her to, to take that role because they knew she had the capability and not everyone does have the capability. But she wasn't, I don't think she wanted to be Queen Bee, you know, the way Margaret Thatcher did. Um, and certainly she was very um, supportive of women, created women's schools, uh, you know, in the early creation of Israel, she was very pro-women, wanted to make sure that, you know, women were educated and w women took their place, their equal place alongside men in this new country called Israel. So I, I see great, really great differences between the two of them. And, and I think likewise, I think, you know, Margaret Thatcher in uh, the Argentinian war, um, I think she went into it thinking, ha, here I go, it's my badge of honor, this is my Churchill moment, you know, I'm, they're going to remember me for this, I'm going to be, you know, I think she, she used it rather cynically, politically, I think, I'm not sure, you know much more about this than I do, Jonathan, so, you know, forgive me if I'm completely wrong, but um, whereas Golda went into the Yom Kippur War in particular with incredible pain and um a sense of of the loss of life um and and how every single boy who died in the Yom Kippur war was a, a scar on her heart i think no that reluctance um and the heaviness of of the burden is is hugely part of your performance in this film it really comes through and you know you as as opposed to Thatcher who wanted to be kind of Gloriana uh, exactly so exactly um, yeah but I did wonder about this point about toughness and whether she did feel and again I think you put this in the performance of feeling the need to be as tough if not even tougher than most men there are moments where she says they need to think I'm ruthless enough to kill tens of thousands or leave tens of thousands of men dead. And I just wondered if that was something she felt, that you felt she felt as a woman. Yes, I do. Well, I don't know whether as a woman, but certainly as someone involved in a conflict, understanding that to show a moment of weakness um, can be the thing that the dam, the moment that the dam breaks and you are lost. So I, I, I think that 
within the terms of that war, she forced herself into, you know, a rigid stance because she knew that if, if the enemy sensed any weakness, you know, they would be flooding through the cracks. And I can only imagine, I've never been in that position in re- <laughs> remotely, but, um, I can only imagine, you know, that that's a fairly common thing within a war. You have to show a, an absolutely rigid wall of resistance. To survive. To well, survive, I, I yes. Think probably my favorite. And the survival of Israel was yeah, at stake. Right. And the other thing that I never quite grasped until I did the, the film, that of course, you know, Israel was still a very, very young country. And to lose, I can't remember the exact numbers. Of, of 2,600. Yes, yeah. of, of boys. Yes. Was a huge percentage of the population of Israel. Right. It wasn't like, you know, losing that number of people out of, you know, 50 million. Right. You're losing that number of the young, the beautiful young people of Israel. Um and, and, and a huge percentage of them. And for a few days, you don't know if the country will survive, yeah, and, right? And, and not knowing the country will survive, exactly. So um, the, the pressures must have been so enormous. So no, you could not show weakness at that point. You know, there's this beautiful scene with Henry Kissinger. Yes. Um, in which he comes to, to talk to her about the terms of, of uh, ceasefire. And, and isn't Lev wonderful as wonderful, Kissinger? He's wonderful. fantastic. And, yeah. and he says there, you need to remember, Golda, that I am, I'm, I'm reciting from memory, that I am an American, a Secretary of State, and then I'm a Jew. And you yes. say, yes, but in Hebrew, we read from right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it was just yeah. such a beautiful moment. And it really captures, I think, what the relationship between those two was actually about, specifically around those days of the war. Yes, I know, absolutely. Um, you know, we can get into the deep, deep conversations of, of what it means to be Jewish um, and, and where in your consciousness of who you are, where, where that sits, you know. But a lot of your roles seem to be of Jewish women. I mean, there's the debt. I, I have, the- yes, the debt, um, Woman in Gold, yes, like Maria yes. Altman. And in fact, I just did a film called White Bird. Yes, well, you know, a lot of great roles. <laughs> what can I say? I'm, a, I'm an I mean, actress. I love it, to play a great role. Is that role. a coincidence or it's just, it's just the great role and that's it? There's nothing about it that is... Because, you know, there has been this discussion, and I have to say, in Israel, it is a complete non-issue, that issue of, of Jew Of, of, of can a Jewish a, can people. Can a non-Jewish yes. actor yeah. act in, a, in yes. a Jewish role? I love the fact that the whole concept of casting has completely been thrown up in the air and and the, the pieces are coming down in lots of different ways and I think it's totally a discussion to be had and it's it's opened up opportunities for people who are excluded you know great actors who are excluded from acting because they were deaf think of coda um, you know handicapped so it, it it's it's opened up the world of acting to, to many people who were unfairly excluded mm-hmm. so I love that I think that's great mm-hmm. um, on the other hand we don't want to limit Jewish actors to just playing Jewish roles do we <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and that might be an unfortunate you know a bit. byproduct <laughs> right. so um, it, it's a discussion to be had definitely and do you think there's something about the beyond the fact they're great roles? I just wonder if there's something that draws you particularly to these kinds of stories, to Jewish 
stories that do touch on these, you know, nerves that we've talked about. I mean, the gold story, but, you know, a couple of stories, that the debt and woman in gold that were Holocaust related. You know, do you think you have an, uh, in some ways an affinity for this kind of narrative? I don't think it's necessarily an affinity, but I do um, feel very, very passionately, very passionately that we don't forget the Holocaust, that it doesn't slip into history. And we're on the cusp of that happening. And I, you know, I was born at the end of the Second World War and I grew up in post-war Britain. And the slow, not the realization of what had happened in the Holocaust, which happened really fairly slowly over the next five or six years and the very years that I was growing up, and my education about the Holocaust, which I guess happened to me when I was maybe 11, 12, 13, that sort of age, was, I think, had a very, a really, really profound um, effect on me. So I, I've just personally always felt that anything that we can do to remind people of what happened is really important. So um, whenever I've been asked to play, I mean, playing Marie Altman, for example, I felt that issue was incredibly important of the the artwork and the, and the belongings that were stolen from Jewish families. Um, and the whole issue of restitution, I felt very passionately about. So I really wanted to do Maria Altman for that reason. I felt the issue was very important. I, I believe in Israel. I believe in, in the existence in, of Israel, and, and I believe Israel has to go forward into the future and for the rest of uh, of eternity. Mm. So, and and I believe in Israel because of the Holocaust, basically. So, whether I'm within the film or outside of the f- a film watching it, um, it is something that I do feel strongly about. Yeah. Because because the attitudes towards Israel have obviously changed since 1973, and today it's sadly I say as an Israeli much more uh, controversial. It's more controversial. And, it's and, more difficult. And I wondered to, if there were, you know if there were anyone mm-hmm. trying to say to you, "Don't do this film. Don't come to Israel." You know, yes, that kind of. There were, there were, and and certainly um, people saying, "Don't go now today," <laughs> you know, but having experienced Israel in the, in the 70s and then subsequently coming to visit you know I've met such extraordinary people in Israel that I I know that there is a there is a a, a base a foundation of deep intelligence thoughtfulness commitment po- poetry even in Israel that uh, that is very very special I think you spoke against the cultural boycott, for example. You said that's a crazy I idea. I did. I, I don't, because I'd met great artists mm-hmm. and, in Israel, mm-hmm. and to abandon those artists didn't seem right to me. Um, on the contrary, work with the artists of Israel, uh, the musicians, the actors, the wonderful actors that I was so lucky to work with on this film. Um, you know, they're members of my, I'm, I'm a member of their tribe. I might not be Israeli, but I am a member of the actor's tribe, you know. 
it's the artistic community to to my of course i'm a i am an actor so i believe in the artistic community but it's the artistic community that i believe will carry israel forward i'm interested in um in where the rest of your fellow members of the acting tribe where they stand on this because i would suspect some don't have the kind of sympathy or affinity for israel that you've described and i wonder whether your stance your position has ever cost you i mean even parts or roles that might have come your way where directors on stage or screen or whatever have thought mm, no thanks because she's sort of unsound on this issue do you think it's cost you at all well gosh jensen i i wouldn't know would i because you know no one would ever tell me that um i've really doubt it That's i true. have to say i i really really doubt it you know i i would be surprised if that was the case i have to say and you've not fallen out with friends over it? No, that? no, not at all. Absolutely not at all. I mean, it was funny, you know, m many years ago, I was at a sort of um, a slightly posh dinner party in, in New York. And there were a lot of liberal Jewish people there, wealthy liberal Jewish people. The subject of Israel came up. And the sort of early days of the conflicts that we are seeing now in Israel, and obviously, the whole issue with the Palestinian people, which is so profound and, and tragic and, and difficult and painful, for, uh, profoundly painful. So the discussion was opened up and um, they came, everyone sort of said their piece and then they, they came down to me at the end, you know, what's this English actress, what do you say? What do you think about it? What's they saying in London about this? And I said, well... In 1967, I worked on a kibbutz. <laughs> have any of the other rest of you ever worked on a kibbutz? <laughs> so of course, none of them had, you know, all these big Jewish people. Um, so I kind of, oh, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I honestly think it was that early experience that wrote the blueprint for my sort of feelings about Israel. By the way, so did Jonathan. He was, uh, you were in grapes, he was in bananas, but oh, he was bananas, also spending, yes, yes. You were kibbutz yeah. on, he was kibbutz yeah. Same, same thing, yes. same thing. But that, you spoke about that, about having a Jewish boyfriend from the Royal Shakespeare Company. You both were there and then you came to Israel and you were re here. Slightly after the, the, um, after the, the Six, six Day, Day War. War, quite briefly after. I mean, about six months after the Six Day War. Certainly there were no-go areas. Mm -hmm. I witnessed things that were wrong. I witnessed, you know, Arabs being thrown out of their houses in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. There was, a, I remember there was a general strike, an Arab strike, because, you know, people were just being arbitrarily thrown out of their houses. And there was a lot of things that were very, to my mind, very wrong happening. But um, also, it was just um, the extraordinary sort of magical energy and of a, of a country just beginning to put its its roots in the ground. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing time to be here. Obviously, this is also a very intense time to be here now with this judicial overhaul and the protests. And you had said, I think, to AFP that uh, Golda would have disagreed with Netanyahu with what he's trying to do now. Can I ask about your views, what, what you think, what you're looking at when you, when you look at what Israel's going through these days? It's not just Israel, is yeah. it? It's, it's Russia, it's Hungary, it's so many countries in the world. This sort of weird right-wing wave that's breaking upon the shore of the world. It's, it, it's interesting the way things like this happen in different countries kind of at the same time. 
and and whether it's some sort of visceral or some human reaction to the rise of liberalism that is that happened in the post post second war era i don't know jonathan you probably know you're much smarter than i am about these things i mean i don't know but um you know it it seems something that that is not it's not just happening in israel let's put it that way no, I mean, ha- hardly smarter, but I did wonder about whether the timing now, given this wave, I like the way you put it, I mean, the wave breaking on the shore, it is breaking on the shore in Israel. And I wondered if some people, not not the, the, the crowd who would have demanded you boycott Israel at any time, but whether other people, maybe even quite pro-Israel people, but liberal people who don't like what's happening now, whether any of them said to you, Look, Helen, now's not the time to go because if you go, it will be seen as somehow support yes. for this no, very no, particular people, government. No, no, people did say that to me. But I said, no, my people are the people out on, on demonstrating. And I know those people. And I know how remarkable they are and how many there are of them. And that is Israel as well. It's not, you know, it's not one sided. So to me, it's more to, not that I'm my existence here. I'm I'm here to promote Golda. <laughs> you know, I'm not here as any kind of political, you know, mouthpiece or anything at all. Um, but if I was here at the weekend, I would definitely I would join a group somewhere, find my group within the crowd, and I'd be there with them. You know, we are uh, as many of my friends on this film are, instantly. And Guy, our, our director, is there every weekend. Yeah. It's amazing because the Israeli uh, actors uh, with you and all the other people on set said the amazing thing about you is you have absolutely no celebrity attitude. They say they she hung out with us. She was with us for hours before we came in, hours after. Like they, <laughs> they're totally, you know, they adore you. And they said something so sort of approachable and, you know, not at well, all. What I they said, my tribe. <laughs> they're my peeps. Yeah, my people. So they felt it. I'm just one of them, really. Yeah. Just something general. We talked a lot about Israel and Jews and about Golda, but something about you. And there are so many actresses in Hollywood who say that they don't get opportunities after a certain age. You have seemed to miraculously circumvent this. I mean, you seem to not, this doesn't seem to be a problem for you. Do, do Can you tell us how? Or? I think I've just honestly just been really, really lucky. Mm-hmm. It is so much to do with luck. I mean, uh, you know, the ability to play gold is, is really wonderful. And, and yes, it's true. I mean, for men and for women. And, and, you know, there are, there's a side of, of the entertainment industry that is to do with, with youth and energy. And, and so it should be. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, and indeed beauty and all the rest of it. And we all enjoy that and love it. And, 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 and so it absolutely should be, you know. I believe in the young. I think they're incredibly important. They're, they're, we need the young. And, and I think also women's stories were ignored or suppressed or dismissed. And, and I think I've been very fortunate in that I'm still alive uh, through an era that is realizing the huge contribution that women have made mm-hmm. historically in art, in science, in in politics. Um, Could I just come in with a parochial British question? And that is that you obviously played the Queen on stage and you played her on film. And I wondered how the death of Queen Elizabeth 
touched you um, when it I came? I knew it was going to happen in my lifetime. And I knew it was going to be devastating when it came because I'm an Elizabethan. You know, I was seven when she was crowned, I think. She's been there my whole life. And, and obviously a woman who had such a long life, she was absolutely, a, you know, a brick in the wall of my Britishness. And that brick was gone and I, I'm, and, and my wall, you know, wobbled a bit. It was very, very profound, actually, that, you know, I'm not a royalist, particularly, um, you know, I'm a bit of a, bit of a Republican, really. So it wasn't that sort of thing, but, but it was, you know, how can I put it, really? It was my history. And, and, um, she was very much not, no, I always said she was a bit like Big Ben. You know, I drove past Big Ben a hundred times without ever really looking at Big Ben and really understanding how Big Ben works, you know. So it was a bit the same with the Queen, you know, until I did investigate her because I played her. It was profound, but we, but we move on. Life has to move on and Britain will become a different place. I think also, Jonathan, I don't know about you, but it's the loss of that generation to me as well. And I felt it when, when my parents died. A loss of the generation who experienced the Second World War, experienced in Britain in particular, post-Second World War Britain, the bombed out London, you know, the, the 70s, the black, you know, and, and the struggle, financial, economic struggle that Britain went through after the Second World War the nobility of the creation of the socialist state that I very much benefited from, and all of that, that I call them, you know, the noble generation. And, and the loss of that generation, I felt very strongly. Dame Helen Muren, thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. We could go on and on and on. I think. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I slightly feel like you do after you've met royalty, I think. Um, do, you know, bit. remotely for me, you were there. I mean, did you not it's, feel the urge to curtsy on some level? A little bit, a little bit. I wanted to even. It, it sets the bar quite high for uh, future interviews on Unholy, don't you think? I mean, I think we, we can't do into... anything better than that. <laughs> no, she was uh, wonderfully engaging and so interesting on on Israel, her perspective on it, as somebody whose connection goes back, you know, many decades, on Golda Meir herself. I just thought um, a really, really uh, stimulating conversation with uh, one really? of the most admired performers in really? the world. Really? And when you watch the movie, and we both watched it, right? She is Golda. Like, it took me, and I'm an Israeli, believe me, I know what Golda looks like. I mean, it took me very long minutes to try and remember what Golda actually looks like. I mean, the documentary footage comes at the end. You're like, oh, okay. Because I think for a whole generation of young people watching this film, Helen Mirren as Golda will be the image of Golda. Yeah, no, completely. She inhabits uh, that woman. Um, we should do some award handing out, not Academy Awards, I'm afraid. We can't do those ourselves, but we have our own little nominations committee. And in fact, um, who's been, who've been meeting in Conclave, you, Yoni, have been far too busy with, um, breaking and developing news where you are. You have contracted out the nominations committee to me. That which seems has to be met, happening a lot lately. <laughs> it does, because you've got quite a lot on your plate. But the, um, the committee met in almost constant session. We have decided that our um, Chutzpah Award 
you know, it breaks hearts always to hand this over to a print newspaper, but we are going to have to, I'm afraid, hand the Chutzpah Award a week to the Los Angeles Times sports section. Because for cost-cutting reasons, and all newspaper journalists know about this, has is having to cut its cloth and has therefore had to bring forward its deadlines. It now has to finish its sports section and print it earlier on in the day, indeed in the afternoon. And it means, therefore, that sports results that break in the evening games will now no longer be in the next morning's newspaper. Why is this chutzpah for our unholy audience? It's because that there is a whole culture which our Orthodox listeners, our Sabbath observant listeners will know well, which is when there is a Friday night sports game and it's impossible to check TV or use a phone because people don't do that on Shabbat, the only way of finding out the result is uh, to look in the print newspaper the next morning. And there was a lovely piece in the forward by Lewis Keane, who uh, says that he grew up with that tradition of there'll be a Lakers game the night before, and then as part of his Shabbat ritual, Friday night's thinking about the game, were they going to be up, were they going to be down, and then finding the outcome in the print newspaper that morning, which you could, of course, read without violating the Sabbath. That is no longer happening. A ritual, a Jewish rite for the Sabbath observant sports fan has been removed by this decision. We understand why it happens, because print is not as easy as it was. But I'm afraid a chutzpah award goes to the LA Times for depriving the orthodox sports fan of that very particular pleasure so i'm afraid that that award on its way to los angeles meanwhile our mention award goes to the european union of jewish students who have taken twitter to court they've done it in germany where uh, these kind of lawsuits are more it's a more hospitable environment for these kind of lawsuits. A German court has ruled so far in favour of the European Union of Jewish Students to say that they can bring an action accusing Twitter of allowing hateful content to proliferate on its platform. It's another headache for Elon Musk, but EUJS, alongside the German digital advocacy group HateAid, gone to the courts to say this is the, the there was insufficient moderation of content the anti-semitism and hate speech was getting through they picked out a few specific tweets and the german court has said yes to them i think social media and hate speech on all social media is a huge problem often people throw up their hands in, in feeling powerless to do anything about it but jewish students have set a lead and said no you can fight back in the courts the german courts have said yes to at least this initial first judgment and so a mention award on its way to them very good see you don't need me at all you could do this all by yourself could be no, the one committee Jew is actually on let the me news. know it's just not a rhyme that's a it problem. does it doesn't work as a rhyme <laughs> and the committee has let it be known that they will refuse to serve unless uh the full compliment the full minyan of the committee is restored and we are quarreled again next time <laughs> So don't make a habit of it, Yoni, but we are giving you special regal dispensation in a week where we had Dame Helen Mirren has been granted. So yeah, chutzpah and mensch on its way, those awards are on its way, uh, on their way. We should say that if you have uh, responses to any of what we've been talking about, including the question raised by Eric Alterman, is Bruce Springsteen Jewish? Go to at Unholy Podcasts on Facebook and on Instagram. Let us know what you think. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Attic. And we will meet uh, next week, Jonathan. See you then. See you.
This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.